Okay, so into our next podcast. So, this is American society in the 1920s. So, we're going to start off with some different political philosophies. So, you've got your more radical philosophies. So, these are going to be your um, anarchists, your socialists, your communists. And these are going to be groups that advocate for, like, drastic revolutionary changes in society and in the government. So, your anarchists, these are going to be the most radical, and they're going to resort to political assassinations, bombings, and other radical activities, specifically in Europe and also in the U.S. Some They want absolute direct democracy, and they want local control. And some of them saw this as the most extremist form of communism. All right, so your socialists, they want a government that's sympathetic to workers and the government ownership of basic industries like railroads and telephones and steel. Your communists, these are going to be inspired by the Bolshevik uh, revolution in Russia, and they're going to believe that the government should control all the means of production and redistribute this wealth evenly among the people. For the most part, if you're looking at these in economy standards, this is going to be a command economy. Now, then you have your conservatives. These are going to be these groups that want to preserve the existing order rather than changing it. And this is going to be often pro-business in this particular area. So very, you know, capitalistic or crony capitalism. Uh, reactionary. These are the these are the groups groups that want to move society back to past society. Usually uh, this is idealized. These are going to be like your mugwumps, some of your progressives who wanted to impose this traditional white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ideal on this changing society, and the KKK is considered one of the most reactionary of these groups. Then you have your liberal or your progressive. They advocate for changes in society's institutions in order to reflect the changing conditions. Think like uh, Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson. So the progressive movement is going to embody liberalism. Now, these, refer- these terms are going to refer to means as well as ends. So, one can pursue a radical goal by conservative means. So, like socialists running for political office in a democratic political system. So, think Eugene Debs. Okay, so Americanism in the 1920s. We had the, Red Sc- we had the Red Scare and the Great Unrest. Now, the U.S. fears of radicalism, so the, you know, Bolshevism, uh, the large numbers of strikes, the bombings, this is going to result in a lot of street violence, and the government's going to crack down on any suspected radicals. In October of 1917, there's going to be the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and this is going to spark a lot of paranoia that communism is going to end up spreading to the U.S. Now, two small communist parties were formed in the U.S. with around 70,000 members total. World War I, one anti-German hatred was now transferred to the continuing stream of these new immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe who might, let me stress might, have communist um, sympathies. There's going to be a large number of strikes that occur after World War One. The U.S. economy is not ready for these returning soldiers from Europe. It was largely the result of the inflation during the war and then the failed Union organi- organizing drives. Uh, more strikes are going to occur in 1917, but the number of strikers are going to grow by 1919 to about 4 million workers. And this is going to represent about 20% of all the workers, the largest proportion in the U.S. history. Uh, Wilson is going to lift the wartime price controls, but he's not going to suspend anti-strike regulations. Business leaders are going to withdraw, withdraw the wartime concessions they had made to labor, and millions of returning veterans are going to be mad at the economic situations back home because like, the price of food is going to a double and the cost of clothing is nearly going to triple. Labor had uh, been sacrificed during the war and 
this was like the expected payback. <coughs> Excuse me. Many Americans are also going to believe that U.S. labor troubles were the result of the spread of Bolshevism. There's going to be an evangelist named Billy Sunday who was among the most famous anti-Bolshevik personalities. President Wilson, uh, his six-month absence from the U.S. to negotiate the Versailles Treaty is going to reduce the federal government's responsiveness to the Red Scare and the racial violence. So that Red Summer that we talked about before that was in 1917. The Seattle General Strike of January of 1919 was the most famous general strike in U.S. history. There's going to be about 35,000 shipyard workers that went on strike after they failed to get wages increased to compensate for inflation during the war. All unions in Seattle and about 65,000 additional workers, including the American Federation of Labor, or the AFL, and the Industrial Workers of the World, or the IWW, are going to demand higher, higher pay for the shipyard workers. Now, the strike was peaceful and orderly, but the conservatives are still going to fear a European-style labor takeover. The Seattle mayor, uh, Ole Hansen, I know it's a horrible name, is going to call for federal troops charging falsely that the strike was a Bolshevist uprising. So liar, liar, pants on fire here. Anyway, many saw Hansen as a hero for snuffing out the anarchy of Russia when it wasn't actually anarchy. It was people just wanting better wages. Okay, labor unions are going to seek industrial democracy, especially that AFL, the liberals, and the socialists. They call for permanent federal ownership of railroads, like all the other industrialized nations at the time. They're going to, they want a, uh, a board of directors to represent both uh, consumers and labor. The government is going to end up setting policies, but workers are going to manage the railroads, and the public and railroad workers would divide all profits. This is what they're wanting. The conservatives viewed this as a socialist attack on capitalism and representative government. The idea for Congress ownership of railroads was voted down by Congress in August of 1919. The Boston police strike. This is going to be in 17... 17. This is going to be a September of 1919. Sorry about that. Uh, it's going to be over 70% of Boston's 1,500 policemen are going to be on strikes. Basically the same reason as everybody else. They want better wages and they want the right to unionize. Uh, some work 73 to 98 hours a week with no pay for what was considered to be parade duty. The conservatives characterized the strike as another victory for the Bolsheviks. The police strike was one of the most frightening strikes in the minds of many of the Americans. If law enforcement went on strike, anarchy might result. This is the, you know, the thought. Policemen went on strike in 37 other cities. Massachusetts Governor Calvin Coolidge, name should sound familiar because he becomes president later, uh, called out the National Guard stating that it was... There was no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. He refused AFL leader Samuel Gompers' offer to settle the strike, believing that police had no right to form a union. And Coolidge became, you know, a national hero and vice president in less than like two years. Police strikers were fired and a new force was recruited from the National Guard. The Great Steel Strike. September 1919, the AFL attempted to organize the steel industry. Now, this is going to represent a major shift in AFL policy as it was now seeking to organize unskilled labor by industry. It demanded an eight-hour day, a six-day week, and an end to the 24-hour shift every two weeks and union recognition. Albert Gary, who was head of U.S. Steel, refused to negotiate, claiming representatives of the AFL were not his employees. Nearly half of the American steel workers worked for U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel executives portrayed the strike as a part of an overall communist movement, and public opinion eventually turned against the strikers. Many of the workers were immigrants, which played into the whole nativist fear. 
After a lot of violence and the use of federal and state troops, the strike was broken by January of 1920. Many Americans became increasingly anti-labor. The United Mine Workers of America struck November 1919. This is going to be led by John Lewis, and he's perhaps the most important labor leader of the 20th century, along with Samuel Gompers. The workers are going to demand shorter hours, higher wages. Uh, the Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer is going to get injunctions, and the union called off the strike. President Wilson is going to use uh, World War I legislation that had prohibited strikes in war industries in order to attack the United Mine Workers. An arbitration board is later going to award the mine workers a, mine, a uh, wage increase. Ha ha. Anyway, Palmer raids. These, uh, yeah. All right, so let's get into it. The anarchist bombing. So in the wake of the anti-war activity, increased nativism and major labor strikes, there's going to be a wave of bombings. It's going to make a threat of radicals uh, in the U.S. appear real. In late April of 1919, nearly 30 mail bombs were sent to prominent government officials and businessmen, but few were injured and few of the bombs reached <clears throat> Very few of the bombs actually reached their intended targets. In June, bombs in eight cities exploded, including one that damaged the home of Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer. Uh, after the bomb scares, Palmer is going to acquire 500000 from Congress to tear out the radical seeds of anarchy. Palmer had presidential aspirations in 1920 and used the issue to stoke public opinion. The identities of persons who sent the bombs were never identified, but anarchists, Bolsheviks, and... The IWW wobblies were blamed. Of course, it's blamed people. We don't even know who did it. Anyway, May Day violence occurred against socialists by U.S. servicemen in Cleveland, Boston, and New York, although servicemen in Europe were even more violent towards radicals. Several cities, several cities made teachers sign loyalty oaths and emphasized Americanism or WASP values. November of 1919, 249 radicals were deported to Russia after nationwide raids, and most deporters were anarchists. Many of the orders came from the First Lady, Edith Wilson, and the President's Secretary. The American Legion, which is a nationalist group of veterans, is going to take the lead in going after dangerous foreigners, a role during World War I that, had, that they had inherited from post-Civil War Grand Army of the Republic, or GAR, G-A-R. January 2nd of 1920, 5,000 suspected communists were arrested in 33 U.S. cities. Most suspects were seized without warrants. They were denied attorneys, and they were deprived of food, heat, and bathroom facilities. Sounds like it violates the Constitution, because it does. Anyway, uh, 550 Russians were deported, and many were U.S. citizens, meaning they were denied their constitutional rights public reaction to all this gobbledygook. Uh, most Americans are going to condone Palmer's actions. Critics of the raids questioned the compromising of individual rights. Wobblies and other radicals were vigorously prosecuted, and in 1925, members of the New York legislature were denied seats because they were socialists. The Red Scare ended in the summer of 1920 when alleged May Day strikes did not occur, and Palmer, Palmer was discredited. Conservatives used the Red Scare to break the backs of the new labor unions. Laborers, laborers called for the closed shop and was criticized as being communist. The recession of 1921 further weakened the unions, so prices fell you know, faster than wages, which helped workers. And by 1922, real wages were up 19% compared to 1914, which paved the way to the economic prosperity of the 1920s. Employers campaigned for the open shop, or the American plan, that would further weaken labor unions, and the AFL lost 25% of its members.
So the Sacco and Vanzetti case is S-A-C-C-O, and then Vanzetti is V-A-N-Z-E-T-T-I. So, <clears throat> so in 1921, Niccolo Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, these are going to be two uh, Italian anarchists and atheists who had dodged the World War I draft. They were convicted of killing two people in a robbery in Massachusetts. The jury and judge appeared to have native, nativist prejudice against the two men. The defendant's radicalism became an issue during the trial. Although the evidence was not conclusive, many believed the conviction was due to prejudice. There's going to be repeated motions for a new trial. There's going to be denied by Judge Webster Thayer and the Massachusetts Supreme Court. In 1927, Judge Thayer is going to sentence the men to death by electric chair. The case is attracting, going to attract world attention. There's going to be riots that break out in Japan, Warsaw, Paris, and Buenos Aires after the executions. Because the powers that convicted Sacco and Vanzetti were members of the upper class, the executions seemed to be class-based. Distinguished Americans like Felix Frankfurter, Albert Einstein, and George Bernard Shaw are going to protest. The Italian-American community was deeply affected by this. In 1977, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis is going to vindicate both men claiming faults existed in the case. All right, the Ku Klux Klan. There's going to be the resurgence of the Klan. It's going to begin in the South, but it's also going to spread heavily into the Southwest and the Midwest. So Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. The Midwest accounted for about 40% of the new Klan membership compared to only 6 percent in the far west total membership is going to reach as high as five million by the 1920s the clan's resurgence was spawned by the 1915 movie birth of a nation that was directed by dw griffith it was the first blockbuster epic in movie history and it was three hours long it was based on the 1905 book the klansman a historical romance of the kkk by thomas dixon the KKK was had resembled the nativist know-nothings of the 1850s who were anti-Irish and anti-German, and the American Protective Association of the late 19th century, which was anti-Catholic and anti-Irish, then the anti-black terrorist group of the Reconstruction Era. It's going to oppose immigration, so Catholics, Jews, communists, blacks, bootleggers, gamblers, adulterers, and public advocates of birth control. They don't like anybody. They're going to be extreme pro-WASP, so that's where their values are going to be. They're going to be opposed to modernism and diversity in U.S. society. So in some, the KKK was extremist, ultra-conservative, and racist. Now, there's going to be, you know, the demise. Granted, it's still around, but, it, you know, it's pushed way down. Um... In 1925, David Stephenson, which is the KKK leader in Indiana, he went to jail for second-degree murder of a woman he kidnapped and abused. At one point, he claimed, I am the law in Indiana. Apparently not. Uh, the scandal is going to lead to a large-scale decline in the Klan's uh, influence. Stephenson is going to provide evidence of other Klan activities by high-level officials in Indiana. There's going to be embezzlement by Klan officers. It's going to lead to congressional investigation that found that the KKK's uh, $10 initiation fee constituted a racket. Violence against blacks during Red Summer and the 1919 race riots were partially due to the attitudes spread by the KKK. Nativism. Now, this is going to lead to a lot of anti-immigration laws. Many in America, especially in the rural areas, believed immigrants were eroding traditional American values. The 1921 Immigration Act is going to come out of this. It's going to, it's going to end open immigration with a limit and a quota system. This is going to, be, going to allow 350000 total per year and no more than 3% of a specific ethnic population already in the U.S. These numbers were based on the 1910 census. It allowed only a about 158,000 from countries other than Northern and Western Europe. 
1924 National Origins Act, or the Immigration Act of 1924. It's going to reduce immigration to 152,000 total per year. So we went from 350,000 to 150,000. Congress is going to perceive the 1921 law as two weeks, the previous one. Only, only around 21,000 immigrants were allowed from countries other than the northern and western Europe, so the 3% cap was reduced to 2%. The census year-to-base figures was changed from 1910 to 1890, and it's going to drastically reduce the numbers from eastern and southern Europe, as most had come after 1890, so it seems a little purposeful. Uh, Poles, Italians, and Russians were also... also often seen as less American. Asians were banned completely. Irish and Germans were not affected, unlike in the 1850s. Uh, Canadians and Latinos were exempt from the quota system. Mexicans immigrated to L.A., San Antonio, and Denver in large numbers when where they held low-paying jobs and lived in poor neighbors, neighborhoods, also called barrios, B-A-R-R-I-O-S. The Immigration Act of 1929, using 1920 as a quota base, virtually cut immigration in half. By 1931, more foreigners left than arrived. Congress later abolished the National Origins Quota System in 1965. Okay, the Scopes Trial, or also known as the Monkey Trial, of 1925. The fundamentalists are going to challenge Darwinism. They believe the teachings of evolution in public school was undermining Christianity while contributing to the moral de- uh, degradation of youth during the Jazz Age. Numerous attempts were made to pass laws prohibiting teaching of evolution in public schools. Tennessee and two other states will adopt such laws. High school biology teacher John Scopes was indicted for teaching evolution. Tennessee's Butler Law of 1924 banned any teaching of theories that contradicted the creation in the books of Genesis. The American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, wanted to fight the case and ran an ad in the New York Times asking for a teacher to volunteer to challenge the law. Scopes agreed. The case attracted an enormous public falling and was broadcast over the radio. Uh, Clarence Darrow will defend Scopes and William Jennings Bryant, who was a professor. Presbyterian fundamentalist was the prosecutor. Now, the views of fundamentalism, fundamental, I wish I could speak, fundamentalism itself seemed to be on trial. Darrow put Brian on the witness stand on the last day of the trial to defend the literal interpretation of the Bible. Brian was asked at length about his literal biblical beliefs. Did he think the earth was created in six days? Brian said not six days of 24 hours. John Scopes was found guilty and fined $100. The Supreme Court of Tennessee, however, set aside the the fine on a technicality. Fundamentalism suffered a setback as well. Brian was aware of his contradictions and died less than a week after the trial due to a stress-induced stroke. Yet, fundamentalism remained vibrant, especially in the Baptist Church and the rapidly growing Churches of Christ. Prohibition. This is going to be one of the last of the progressive reforms. So the 18th Amendment was ratified by the states in 1919, and it was supported heavily by churches and women. It's going to draw heavy support in the Midwest and especially the South. Southern whites were eager to keep alcohol from blacks. The Volstead Act of 1919 enforced the amendment. Prohibition was opposed in the larger eastern cities where wet immigrants traditionally consumed alcohol. Problems with enforcement. There's all these loopholes, too. Anyway, uh, federal authorities had never, like, satisfactorily enforced a law where the majority of the people or a strong majority were hostile to it. Most drinkers are going to ignore the dry laws. Think Jonesboro. It's, or or Craighead County. It's dry, but it's super wet. Uh, Lack of enforcement 
It's going to uh, cripple the prohibition. Alcohol could be sold by a doctor's prescription, so loophole one. Alcohol was necessarily for industrial use. So there's number two. Now, in order to keep people from consuming it, poison was supposed to be added to it. But, you know, not always. So people could still use it even if it was for industrial use. Uh, alcohol could be manufactured in small amounts almost anywhere. 700 million gallon, gallons of homebrew was made in 1929. It's not that difficult to make. So it's really hard to enforce something like this. All right, so the results of prohibition. There's going to be a rise in organized crime. There's going to be huge profits from bootlegging. And this is going to become, become the foundation of corruption. Al Capone was one of the most powerful gangsters of the 1920s from his headquarters in Chicago. He was eventually jailed for tax evasion and served most of his 11-year sentence before dying in prison. This is going to increase gang violence. There's going to be about 500 gangsters are going to be killed in Chicago in the 1920s. Many government officials are going to accept bribes. Organized crime is going to spread to prostitution, gambling, and narcotics. Honest merchants were forced to pay protection money to gangsters. And by 1930, profits from the black market were several times the income of the federal government. You're also going to get a rise in speakeasies. They're these secret bars that are opened by bootleggers. They became uh, these middle-class havens for drinkers. Uh, William could now drink in speakeasies where they were, you know, before this, they were forbidden to drink in saloons. Saloons are going to disappear, and this is going to deny immigrants access to alcohol, and many Americans are going to get used to casually breaking the law. Eventually, prohibition will be appealed in 1933, but it's going to take 14 years in order to do this. Okay, mass consumption economy in the 1920s. Now, business was glorified in the 1920s. It was almost like a religion. Uh, the Man Nobody Knows by Bruce Barton was a top-selling book in 1925-1926, and it called Jesus the first modern businessman. Jesus picked up 12 men from the bottom of society and forged an organization that conquered the world. Every advertising man ought to study the parables of Jesus. They are marvelous, marvelously condensed as good uh, sorry, as all good advertising should be. Now, those are excerpts from The Man Nobody Knows. Calvin Coolidge, the man who built a factory, builds a temple. The man who works there worships them. Businessmen were considered the people that ruled the nation. So everybody's kind of understanding what's going on here. All right, so the booming economy. The U.S. came out of World War One as the world's largest creditor nation. A brief post-war recession occurred in 1920 to 21, but the economy soared after that. Uh, Andrew Mellon's trickle-down tax policies favored the rapid, ex rapid expansion of capital investment. Buying on credit became another in, uh, innovative feature of the post-war economy. Consumers were attracted to this buy-now-pay-later philosophy. Now, between 1922 and 1928, industrial productivity is going to rise 70%. Wages were an all-time high, but they were you know, still slow, slightly lower for the poor. Electric power is going to increase 19-fold between 1912 and 1929. So before World War I, 20% of homes had electricity. By 1930, 70. Refrigerators, vacuum cleaners, and electric stoves came into, you know, the now, the vogue, what was considered modern. Uh, new technology is going to result in greater efficiency. These electric motors were more efficient than steam machines, and the assembly line is going to drastically accelerate production. The new industries are going to spur a growing economy. So light metals like aluminum and synthetics for clothing. Movies, radio, and radio uh, manufacturing are going to become big, and the auto industry is going to jump by leaps and bounds. It's going to spark the petroleum, steel, rubber, 
uh, machine tools, and road building industry. So it led to a whole lot. Uh, the construction industry is going to grow significantly, so you're going to get skyscrapers. They're going to continue to change the horizon of major cities. The Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building, the two tallest buildings in the world, are going to be completed in 1931. We're also going to get medical breakthroughs like the iron lung or the respirator. This is going to be cures for, uh, we're going to get cures for like tuberculosis and smallpox. And the life expectancy in 1910 was about 49, 20 years later, 59. So, you know, we're going in the right direction. <clears throat> There's going to be a consolidation of trust that's going to continue at a fast pace in the 1920s. By 1929, half the nation's wealth was absorbed by the top 200 corporations. Chain stores are going to become common, like Woolworths, Sears, and Roebuck. Which, you just know it is Sears. It kind of took off that last little thing. Uh, for the longest time, there was a Sears and Roebuck catalog that went out to everybody in the nation. You could order whatever you wanted. Um... I know there was an episode of MASH that they ordered, and they're over in uh, Korea. They ordered a, a, uh, a canvas wash tub from Sears and Roebuck. Anyway, uh, corporate leadership is going to begin to be controlled by these college-trained, replaceable manu uh, managers rather than the traditional Henry Ford types. Okay, our white-collar workers from 1920 to 19, 1930, white-collar jobs are going to rise around almost 40% from 10.5 million to 14.5 million. In 1900, 18% of workers were white-collar. By 1930, 44. Manual labor jobs are only going to rise about 7.5, so we're going to go from about 29 million-ish to about 30.5 million. Uh, there's going to be a huge increase of consumer products that are going to create, or that are going to create a need for advertising and salespeople. The sales profession was attractive to men with promises of high income. Women were increasingly entering the workforce, so typists were middle class, high school educated, and female. Lower class men and women tackled the necessary language skills, or they lacked them. Sorry. Uh, women were also teachers, shop clerks, cashiers, and switchboard operators that we've already talked about. Uh, around 60% of female worker workforce was African-American and foreign-born women, mostly in the domestic service jobs. Now, there's going to be changes in these working conditions, so we're going to get a reduction in work hours. In 1923, the U.S. still gave workers a... Th three eight-hour shifts instead of 12-hour shifts. This is partially because of pressure from President Harding. By the mid-20s, steel production was so efficient that workers were given even more time off. Welfare capitalism. This is an American plan of business. Owners came to believe that if workers were taken care of, labor unions or strikes would no longer be needed. New employee benefits included one-week paid vacation, and these are going to be two weeks for those with seniority. Uh, they'll have basketball courts and baseball diamonds located near factories where workers could play for an hour. There's going to be an availability of a nurse or doctor at the factory to treat injury or illness and cafeterias with good food at low prices. Union membership is going to decline in the 1920s. The AFL had about 5 million members in 1920, but only 3.5 million by 1929. So, see, if you do take care of them, then they're less likely to strike. All right. Unions could not compete with the industrial prosperity, so that wages were not raised significantly, and Ford was an exception to this. Workers had more time off, but no more money to spend. Prices increased faster than wages, so that workers could not buy many of the products they manufactured themselves. Attempts were made to sell U.S. products overseas, but high tariffs on foreign imports is going to result in retaliatory tariffs from European countries. 
Like I said earlier, advertising is going to emerge as a new industry. Manufacturers are going to tap mass markets through advertising. Workers tended to be young, white college grads or former newspaper writers. Men are going to outnumber women 10 to 1. It will use persuasion, allure, and sexual suggestion in magazine, newspaper, and increasingly radio and movie ads. By 1925, the U.S. corporations had spent over a billion dollars, billion with a B, on advertising, and sports is going to become big business. Babe Ruth and Jack Dempsey became famous through the image-making of advertising. Yankee Stadium became known as the house that Ruth built due to the huge crowds that bought tickets just to see Babe Ruth play. Okay, scientific management. This is going to be Frederick W. Taylor in the assembly line. Taylor is going to develop a more efficient working method to increase productivity, which is going to ultimately lead to increased profits and later wages. The principles of scientific management, which was written in 1911, was influential in the developing of the mass production movement. Henry Ford and other automakers were the first to adopt his actual practices. Workers hated Taylorism as it concentrated power in the production process to managers rather than workers and initially led to lower wages and there would be no established regulations in order to protect workers from the challenges of mass production work all right henry ford and his assembly line detroit is going to emerge as the automobile capital of the world in the 1890s some u.s inventors Inventors began to adapt the European gasoline engine to produce cars. By 1910, 69 companies existed with a total annual production of 181,000 units. Henry Ford and Ransom Olds, that's the guy that you know developed the Oldsmobile, were the most successful through their use of assembly line methods. In 1929, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, and these were considered the big three of automobiles, made 83% of cars produced in the U.S., obviously why they're called the Big Three. Ford realized workers were also potential consumers of his cars. In 1914, he raised worker salaries from $2 a day to 5 if workers adopted thrifty habits, meaning they learned English, they didn't gamble, they didn't drink, things like that. Ford hired company spies to check on employees' out-of-work behavior. He also paid good fin- good benefits. He hired handicapped workers, convicts, and immigrants. Ford was called a traitor to his class by many wealthy people who resented his reducing the gap between the higher and lower classes. Ford's assembly line could produce a car in only one and a half hours compared to the 14 hours prior to the advent of the assembly line. One car was produced every 10 seconds at his Rogue River plant near Detroit. The Model T became the staple car in the U.S. for many years. By 1930, Americans owned almost three, or 30 million cars, two-thirds of which were Model Ts. Now, there's going to be drawbacks. Assembly line work was incredibly, incredibly tedious as machines often set the pace of production, and you're just doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Sometimes workers were chained to a machine to prevent accidents. Ford became controversial due to his strong anti-Semitism and his success and views on uh, his success and his views on Jews made him a hero to Hitler and the Nazis. Not exactly somebody you want to be a hero to. Uh, the automobile's impact on the U.S. economy: cars are going to replace the steel industry at the top as the top American industry. It's going to employ huge numbers of workers, about six million by 1930. It's going to support industries like rubber, glass, fabrics. Uh, highway construction, and there's going to be thousands of gallons of of gasoline and gasoline stations and garages. So you're going to have lots of oil, lots of 
uh, stations and lots of garages because people don't know how to fix these yet, so they've got to take them to someone. The steel industry is the sorry. The steel industry was given a further boost. The U.S. petroleum industry exploded as Texas became the center of the oil boom. Uh, this is going to be California and Oregon as well. There's going to be a new network of highways that will emerge. So we're going to get over 380,000 miles that will be built in 1921. And by 1929, we're looking at over 660,000 miles. The U.S. standard of living is going to improve. So leisure time was increasingly spent traveling to new open spaces. Suburbs are going to be spread out even farther, farther as home ownership is going to increase. And food can now be delivered before perishing. The, the railroad industry was decimated by these cars, these buses, and trucks. The social changes resulted from the advent of the automobile. Women are going to become less dependent on men. Home life was affected as youth became more independent. There's going to be an isolation of certain regions like the Southwest. And this is going to decrease as some states lost population at an alarming rate. Buses made possible con uh, consolidation of schools and in some cases churches. Fatalities are going to increase. A million Americans had died in car accidents by 1951, more than all killed in all American battles combined. And bootleggers are going to use these trucks in order to undermine prohibition. They're going to have these little false, uh, false trunk areas. About this time, we also get the airplane. So, December 15, 1903, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, are going to fly a gasoline-powered plane 12 seconds and 120 feet at Kitty Hawk. North Carolina. It's going to launch an age of, of, of aviation. The airplane was used with some success during World War I. Now, shortly after the war, passenger liners with airmail contracts came into being. By the 1930s and 40s, travel by air on regularly scheduled airlines was much safer than on many of these overcrowded highways. 1927, Charles Lindbergh is going to fly the first solo flight across the Atlantic. His Spirit of St. Louis is going to fly from New York to Paris in 39 hours and 39 minutes. Lindbergh became an American icon and world hero. The female aviator Amelia Earhart is going to further the cause of women's liberation by repeating Lindbergh. Lindbergh's feet in 1932. Uh, because of the airplane, civilization is going to become more closely linked as the time to travel vast differences is going to shrink uh, considerably. Railroad received yet another setback because railroads are going to siphon passengers and the mail service, and airplanes were later used with a devastating effect on cities during World War II. The radio. Radio. Marconi. This is going to be an Italian who invented the wireless communication in the 1890s. So we got radio technology that was being used during World War One. The radio was used publicly in November of 1920 when KDKA in Pittsburgh carried the first broadcast announcing that Harding's victory, or announcing Harding's victory of the presidential election in 1920. The range of the broadcast was only a few square blocks, but you know it's a beginning. After that, the radio broadcasts are going to grow exponentially. The national radio networks are going to emerge. So you've got the National Broadcasting Company, or NBC, in 1926, and the Columbia Broadcasting Company, or CBS, in 1927. Both those should sound pretty familiar. The radio profoundly is going to impact uh, the American society. It's going to stimulate the economy with a new industry that employed thousands of workers. It's also going to entertain millions of families during their leisure time, much like television in the 1950s and beyond. Uh, my dad actually said that he would remember sitting around listening to the radio and the shadow.
Anyway, the nation became more closely knitted culturally. Different regions of the country heard broadcasters with standardized accents. Millions of listeners heard uh, comedies like Amos and Andy. Advertisers are going to use radio extensively. Sports events became more profitable with radio broadcasts, and politicians increasingly campaigned on the radio. Newscasts are going to bring news to millions of listeners, many who did not read newspapers regularly. The music of famous uh, music artists and symphony orchestras were broadcasted, broadcasted, enhancing American culture. We also get into the era of motion pictures, so we get this whole new movie industry in the 1980s, 1890s, the peep show penny arcades are going to gain popularity. The first real moving picture was released in 1903, and that was going to be the great train robbery, and it's going to attract thousands of working class patrons to the five cent theaters known as Nickelodeon's. The first full-length classic was D.W. Griffith's That Birth of a Nation. And, you know, as you know, we already talked about, it, it's going to glorify the KKK and defame blacks. Movies got a tremendous boost through anti-German propaganda during World War I. Hollywood soon became the movie capital of the world. The silent movies were the industry standard up until 1927. You're going to have major stars like Charlie Chaplin, Rudolph Valentino, and Clara Bow. Cecil DeMille is going to help found Paramount Pictures in 1914, and he would produce and direct more than 70 films in the next 40 years that collectively grossed about $750 million. In 1927, the first talkie, the jazz singer, featured Al Jolson in blackface doing a minstrel act. Silent movies lost popularity as a result, and by 1930, some color films were being produced. Uh, the impact on movies to the American society. Movies emerged as a national premier entertainment industry, more than radio, music, and live theater. Sports were second, but grossed only one-tenth of movie receipts. By 1930, 100 million tickets were purchased each, each and every week. The vaudeville industry was effectively killed, and live theater decreased in attendance. It's going to employ about 325,000 people in 1930. Actors and actresses, some had huge salaries, became more popular than the nation's political leaders. American culture was bound more closely together as movies became the standard for taste, styles, songs, and morals, and it provided education through newsreels and travelogues. Tabloids and cheap movie magazines emerged as the byproducts of the movie industry. Now, the social life and the culture during the Roaring Twenties. The census of 1920 revealed for the first time that a majority of Americans lived in cities rather than in the countryside. We also get a sexual revolution of the Roaring Twenties. So, theories of Dr. Sigmund Freud, who have been, um, he's been kind of overturned now. Anyway, mistakenly were interpreted by Americans that sexual repression was responsible for a variety of emotional problems. Good health it started to require sexual gratification and liberation in the minds of many younger Americans. The flaming youth of the jazz age emphasized sexual promiscuity, drinking, and new forms of dancing considered erotic by the older generation. This occurred mostly among some urban dwellers, middle-class people, and students who were rel relatively wealthy for the era. The new behaviors emerged for dancing and dress. The flapper style expressed the new freedom of women. Sleeveless, thinner dresses with shorter skirts. One-piece ba one bathing suits are going to shock the older Americans, and the Charleston became a dance craze. Women begin to assert publicly their right to imitate male standards of sexuality. And the reasons for the changing standards. The maxim, eat, drink, and be merry, often appears 
after major wars. World War I had the highest ratio of killed and injured to participants in any war. Sexual morality seemed less important after the carnage. Women saw greater independence, less parental supervision, and the 19th Amendment. And women also increasingly joined the labor force in large numbers and more began to live alone. There was also the impersonality of the urban eras, areas and the automobile gave people more mobility and privacy. Birth control was going to be promoted by Margaret Sanger and others and became widely accepted. Her pamphlets on birth control violated the Cornstalk Law of 1873. In 1916, she established the nation's first family planning clinic in Brooklyn while smuggling in diaphragms and other birth control devices for distribution. She ended up serving 30 days, in, 30 days in jail for these activities. In 1918, a New York court allowed doctors to prescribe contraception. She founded the American Birth Control League in 1931, and in her 80s, she campaigned for the new birth control pill in the early 1960s and saw her lifelong crusade validated a year before her death when the Supreme Court validated birth control in marriages. As women became more independent, they continued to organize. The National Women's Party, led by Alice Paul, began in 1923 to agitate for the Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA, E-R-A, to, uh, to the Constitution. The idea shocked traditionalists. The amendment was finally defeated in the early 1980s. The League of Women Voters was founded in 1920 by leaders of the Nassau, that uh, N-A-W-S-A. Divorce laws were liberalized in many states at the insistence of women. In 1920, one divorce occurred in seven and a half marriages. In 1929, one in six. Many women stayed in the workforce after World War I. There was a rise in church and synagogue membership is going to serve as a conservative and traditional reaction to a changing society. The na uh, nationally popular evangelists are going to tote the traditional values like uh, Billy Sunday and Amy Simple McPherson. Then we get into jazz. The term jazz became popular after World War I, dance music. It eventually merged as America's classical music. Now, pre-World War I development, African-influenced uh, African slave spirituals grew into jubilees and the blues in the rural South. Black folk music retained a certain melodic, harmonic, and rhythmic element that formed a common body of sound. Ragtime works in the late 1890s are considered to be some of the earliest, like Scott Chaplin. Uh, it was the first black music ever to achieve widespread popularity. Blues developed simultaneously along with ragtime. New Orleans Dixieland jazz eventually spread to the north, and it's going to include group improvisation, uh, syncopation, industrial industrial instrumental solos and moderate to fast tempos in the two four meter louis armstrong was the first master improviser and some uh, see this as the true beginning of jazz with him during world war one the great migration of blacks uh, towards the north also meant the migration of jazz to northern cities in the 20s chicago became a center among jazz musicians many came from new orleans and would later be uh, which would later become the center of jazz music during the 1930s swing era new york also flourished during the harlem renaissance okay so harlem a which was a black enclave in New York City with about 100,000 residents in the 1920s is going to grow rapidly during and after World War I. 
Now, the significance of this was that Harlem produced a wealth of African-American poetry, literature, art, and music. And uh, this is going to be expressing the pain, sorrow, and discrimination that blacks felt at this time. Black writers and artists sought to prove their work was equal to that of white. So you had poets and writers like Langston Hughes and, and Zora Neale Hurston, Duke Ellington, and uh, the Cotton Club, which was a famous nightclub, is where he played uh, piano. He was a band leader, and he was a composer, arranger, who formed one of the most famous jazz bands in music history. Marcus Garvey was the leader of the United Negro Improvement Association, or the UNIA. He did the Back to Africa movement, and the purpose was to promote the resettlement of American blacks to Africa. He advocated black racial pride and separatism rather than integration. Uh, he argued black he urged blacks to buy only from blacks and founded a chain of businesses, including grocery stores, restaurants, and laundromats. Garvey was a native of Jamaica and founded the UNIA there. The Black Star Steam, uh, Steamship Company was founded to transport his black followers to Africa, and the company went bankrupt in 1923. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover monitored Garvey and eventually sought to have him arrested and imprisoned. Garvey was convicted of mail fraud in the sale of his company's stock. He was imprisoned and then deported. He instilled uh, self-confidence and self-reliance among blacks and later became the basis for the Nation of Islam, or Black Islam, movement in the 1960s. Okay, the lost generation. After World War I, a new generation of writers outside of the dominant Protestant New, uh, new England is going to emerge. Their works often uh, conveyed resentment of ideals betrayed by society, and they criticized the materialism of the 1920s. The term was coined by Gertrude Stein, one of the leaders of the lost generation. This, and this was based over in Paris. Uh, Henry Mencken, uh, M-E-N-C-K-E-N, of the American Mercury magazine. He's going to attack marriage, the misguided patriotism, democracy, prohibition, and the Victorian-minded middle class. He's also going to attack the perfectionist idea of Puritanism. <coughs> He's going to say it's, it's outdated. He's also going to support and patronize many of the young authors he admired for their critical attitude toward uh, American society. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Now, at, when, at the age of 24, he's going to publish the the side of paradise. So he's going to begin and he's going to become an overnight celebrity. And this book became a guideline for the new generation of the, of, you know, these flappers who sought to break the constraints of the traditional society. You also got the great Gatsby in 1925, and it depicted the glamour and the cruelty of, of a materialistic and achievement oriented society. Theodore Dreiser, who did the uh, an American tragedy in 1925, and this dealt with the murder of a pregnant working girl by her socially ambiguous husband, or husband, boyfriend. Uh, Ernest Hemingway, he fought in World War I on the Italian front in 1917, and the war left an indelible imprint on his psyche. The Sun Also Rises out of 1926, where he wrote of the disillusioned, spiritually numb American servicemen who served in Europe. Farewell to Arms in 1929 is one of the finest novels ever written about the war experience. Sinclair Lewis, he's going to criticize the Midwestern life. And he was a native of Minnesota. He wrote Main Street in 1920. And this is a story of uh, one woman's unsuccessful war against a small town uh, provincialism and traditionalism. 
and then Babbitt in 1922. George F. Babbitt was a wealthy and vulgar middle-class real estate broker who was obsessed with materialism. Uh, William Faulkner is going to be a Southerner from Mississippi. He's considered perhaps the best American novelist of the 20th century. He wrote Soldier's Pay and was a war novel, uh, and The Sound and the Fury, and As I Lay Dying. This is going to be 1929 and 1930. This is going to be a street called, you know, this stream of consciousness is the type of novels he's writing. They're written through the pers uh, perspective of the characters, not a third-person account. T.S. Eliot was an American poet who became a uh, British citizen later. He wrote The Wasteland in 1922. And it's one of the most influential poems of the century, and it conveyed the pessimism and dissolution that many experienced after World War One. All right, so this is where we end this chapter. Your terms to know will be plentiful. And I will choose one of your essay questions for you to work on for this next week.